0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and social constructs galore. And today you've got me, Sol Worthen, a homepage editor at Slate. Right now in the U.S., trans people are a major boogeyman. Gender identity, trans rights, non-binary people, they're all often treated as a punchline by the right and supposed proof that society is falling apart. One common transphobic argument is that trans people are deceptive or even delusional because at the end of the day, sex is this concrete, fixed, unchangeable thing, and trans people are basically trying to override that reality. So in this vision of the world, whatever it says on your birth certificate is essentially something that will define you forever, no matter what you do after you're born. I find this argument really offensive and frankly tiresome. It's not some bold new claim, it's old news. Trans activists and scholars have spent a long time and a lot of energy explaining the nuances of sex and gender and making the case that self-identity matters more than whatever your legal documents say. So I went to women's college and when I first got there The admissions policy was that only people whose identity documents said that they were female were eligible for admission. I was involved with student activism to get the admissions policy changed to allow trans women to attend. A big part of our argument was that the college should focus on self-identity rather than relying on birth certificates, because under the original admissions policy, trans men whose documents listed them as female could attend the school But trans women, whose documents said that they were male, could not attend. It's a women's college, so that seemed pretty backwards, that some women were excluded while some men could attend. And so I think one thing that this uh, brings up that's worth dwelling on is that sex, like gender, is also something that is constructed. It's not this quote-unquote natural thing. We know that there's way more biological diversity that can be summed up by the categories male and female. So the question is, what function does sex as a legal and social category serve? Why do we put so much emphasis on it? And what can it tell us about gender and feminism more generally? On today's episode of The Waves, we're going to unpack some of these questions with the help of Professor Paisley Curra, who recently wrote a book called Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. Stick with us, because when we come back, the first thing we're going to do is dig into the arguments about transgender identity and the law. Welcome back to The Waves. Paisley Curra is a professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He is the author of the new book, Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. Paisley, welcome to The Waves.
1: Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to talk with you. I really enjoyed the book. So for those of you who haven't read it, the book focuses on how people's sex is classified on government documents like birth certificates, driver's licenses, that sort of thing. And it explores what it means when there are contradictions in how the state categorizes trans people's identities. So what does it mean, for example, if some of your documents list you as male and some list you as female? Or in my case, for example, my driver's license has the gender marker X. So your argument, Paisley, which I thought was really interesting, um, reframes the conversation to focus on why the contradictions exist in the first place. So it doesn't start from the premise that sex and gender are these fixed characteristics and we just need to find a better method um, so that everything is consistent. Instead, you argue that the whole act of categorizing people based on their gender or sex reflects what function it serves for a particular institution. So the contradictions are valuable in terms of shedding light on the role of the state in our lives. Can you tell me a bit about why you wanted to make this distinction? I feel like a lot of mainstream trans advocacy focuses on how the government should treat trans people, but your book takes a different approach.
1: So, you know, I've been a professor for a long time, but also doing trans advocacy since the 90s. And of course, I've always been working on with other people trying to get people to get their gender designations right on their identity documents and pass non-discrimination laws. So I'm deeply invested in the should part of things. This is what the government should do. But after a while, I was like, okay, I just want to... step back from the shoulds and try to figure out, like, what's really happening. Because at at first, I was looking at, you know, what I call sex classification in the book, trying to understand these contradictions. It's like, how could I be like, and how could I have an F on a birth certificate and an M on a driver's license? That makes no sense. And it doesn't really make sense, in in some sense. But I decided as a kind of methodological experiment, I would say, you know what, I'm going to give up telling people or thinking about what sex really is. And look about, like, what it does for government agencies, because that might help us understand better, you know, why governments use sex to classify people and why there are contradictions. So, and I decided to use the word sex and not gender. It was a toss up, but I decided to use sex because often that's the word that's used in these statutes. So in my book, I just define sex as you know, the result of a government decision about whether you're M or F or increasingly, you know, X as a non-binary, and then gender, I left to kind of thinking about like you know larger currents and historical narratives about what gender is. So I really wanted to kind of get beyond thinking about the injustice of it, which is still important, and ultimately my long-term goal to understand more deeply why we have these differences.
0: One thing that I thought was really interesting in the book that I thought was illuminating for part of this is the reason that the government is involved in sex classification in the first place or the kind of the origin of it. And sex is tricky because it's one of those things that seems so natural that many people don't think about it that much when they're filling out a form or checking the box for male or female. And a lot of people think about it as just something that is. And the, the purpose of listing it as part of our identification is just to reflect a reality rather than something that is being constructed. Um, so I appreciated that the book kind of dives into that and talks about the point of the government classifying people based on sex as part of this history of having a legal hierarchy of when women were denied rights and resources based on their sex. And so the kind of initial reason that we have those markings on our documents is because of that. And so even though we're in an era now where sex discrimination doesn't kind of structure our laws to the same extent, the government is still in the business of regulating people's identities. So, I wanted to kind of talk through that. And that, like, argument I thought was really interesting in terms of decentering transphobia as the lens to understand these things and kind of zooming out to look at sex discrimination in a broader way.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good way of of putting it cuz one of the things I mean a lot of us myself included in different publications would kind of narrate this kind of growth of a transgender Rights movement, you know, we're kind of marching forward. We're transgender. We're discriminated against. Please change the laws. And I think there's there's certainly a lot of truth to that narrative, and um, it kind of resonates with other, you know, um, new social movements. But I was wanted to kind of get to the, the the bottom of like whether these policies were transphobic. So I started in at the '60s, and I was because I was working on the New York City birth certificates, and I was realizing when I started to really look into the archives and the documents and how these bureaucrats justified their decision, like, not to change the sex classification of transsexual people who came to them. You know, they wouldn't change the trans person's birth certificate in the 1960s. And I looked at the archives and I realized, like, it's because, like, sex is used to distribute rights and resources you know based on gender so the reason we have sex classification in the first place is to make sure that women for the most part don't get as much as men in terms of rights or, or resources there's a couple of there's always a couple of uh caveats to that but whenever men are at loss it's because they're trying to, the state is saying well if you don't pay then we're gonna have to pay so um so I realized like the the exclusion of trans people from the sex classification system wasn't initially intentional it was an accident Byproduct of of misogyny and using the state's power to differentiate uh, between men and women, and so once I understood that, I understood. Right, I kind of argue that um, some of the successes of the transgender rights movement are a result of the successes of what you know many people call second wave feminism. Though I think we're not supposed to talk about do such generational categorizations these days, but just that kind of liberal feminism of getting um, of getting. Uh, the state or the business of discriminating against women. And as those barriers dropped, then the barriers for trans people being reclassified sometimes dropped.
0: Yeah. And I think that that is so interesting in terms of the way that these movements are actually very much intertwined. And, you know, today I think it really rubs me the wrong way that there is in some ways a pitting of feminism and trans rights against each other or seen as in opposition and, you know, I went to a women's college. There was certainly friction there about whether trans students belonged. And, you know, that's maybe a, a more minor example. But then in more dangerous ways, you see like so-called gender critical feminists or TERFs who think that trans people are kind of ruining things for women. And this idea that, Trans women in particular are stronger or more athletic than women, cis women athletes and um, that sort of thing. And there's so much to unpack there. But I think that what really kills me and what I thought was very interesting about your argument is that these so-called gender critical feminists I feel like are going against what to me is a key tenet of feminism, which is that biology is not necessarily destiny and that people's abilities and interests are not or should not be limited to how they were designated at birth. And these women seem to be arguing that womanhood is actually, it is about, you know, your biological sex. And that to me it just feels like such a weird inversion of where things originally started.
1: Yeah, it is a weird inversion. And unfortunately, it totally resonates with right wing gender discourse about natural differences between men and women. So I just sometimes I can't get my head around the gender critical thing, because even as they don't like trans people, especially trans women, they end up Exactly in the pocket of the right wing, and sometimes literally are testifying against LGBT equality bills right beside right wing um, lobbyists. So it's just, it's very confusing to me. Um, I mean, their purported uh, explanation or rationale is like we have to make sure women are safe. And like no one could disagree with that. But when you think about the safety of women and trying to, you know, curtail sexual harassment and end sexual assault. The logical target is not to go to trans women. There's a different logical target out there. We could, we could name them men, you know. But I, in, in a way, sometimes I think it's like men still have so much social power. Like, it's, they're just, it's too scary to pick on them. So we have to act like, you know, trans women um, are sexual predators, which, you know, are, they are not. J.K. Rowling is one of the biggest gender critical feminists out there, and it was so interesting to me that after the Dobbs decision came down, and she's always commenting on U.S. politics, after the Dobbs decision came down, she had nothing to say. She, she didn't seem to care. It took her like a week to say something, and she wrapped it up in a transphobic tweet. It was so. It's just like their priorities are really skewed,
0: and so much of it, you know, seems like you would think. That that is something that, you know, someone who considers themselves a feminist or calls themselves a feminist would care about. But, you know, I feel like abortion is a good example in terms of something that, even though it's a woman's issue, you know, it's also about bodily autonomy. And that is something that is so important to trans activism and this idea that You are the person who is in control of your body and your identity. And I think that abortion activism and trans activism can really align in that um, rubric. But then you get people who really are saying, well, actually, biological sex is real. And that's why we're against trans people. And they are actually not as invested in something like bodily autonomy as they might claim to be. And you see that in examples like the J.K. Rowling silence.
1: Yeah, and it's hard to know if they're against trans people having bodily autonomy, how they can argue that pregnant women should have bodily autonomy, Like, because it just, just seems a very mixed-up argument.
0: We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Paisley and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, where we're going to talk more about the moral panic around trans kids and how it became such a big part of the culture wars. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate+. Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like Amicus, Slow Burn, The Gab Fest, and this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash Plus. Pivoting a little bit, but still talking about these rights, I thought that your discussion in the book of marriage as one of the last sex-based rights until the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage uh, implemented marriage equality, um, I thought that was interesting in terms of thinking about the way that, yeah, the government is still involved or not involved, but then also kind of a success of this movement but in the book, you talk about some examples before Obergefell about trans people and their access to same-sex marriage or opposite-sex marriage, as it were. Can you tell me a bit more about those examples and what you learned from um, the contradictions and kind of twisted logic that came up there?
1: I was trying to figure out, like, why in these places where you can which and you could change the sex classification your driver's license and you could change your birth certificates um why was this all this bad appellate case law on uh, tr- uh marriages in, in which there was one transgender spouse so it was like that's a weird contradiction i was like they're just not getting what sex is and i realized like no sex is like an output not an input and so what i kind of came to realize is that like identity documents serve a different function than marriage. So identity documents are about surveilling people, tracking people across a territory, making sure people have like a piece of paper and now it's more, you know, now it's more digitized, but a piece of paper that kind of says this is who that who I am. So it's actually it was always been in the interest of like the departments of motor vehicles, you know, to um, to let people change their identity documents. And driver's license have long were like the first state institution that like let people change and the first state, in- the first state institutions to drop really difficult obstacles to changing your sex designation, like, like surgery, or even any kind of uh, medical um, uh, transition.
0: Yeah, I didn't when I changed my gender marker on my driver's license, I didn't have to give them anything. I just said that I wanted it to be X and they did it. Nothing. Required.
1: Yeah, I think there might be like 18. There's a number of jurisdictions now, maybe 18. I keep it's hard to keep track. They change so fast where you, where you can do that. And then there were these cases, a whole bunch of cases where these courts would rule that for the purposes of marriage, this trans woman who was married to a cis man was actually a man and the marriage was invalid. And I was like, why? If she can change her birth certificate or driver's license, why can't she be female for the purposes of marriage? And then what I argue in the book is that marriage serves a very different state agenda. So marriage is about kind of controlling populations. There's this kind of Probably too much political theory, talking about how like marriage is this kind of technology to kind of tie people to the land and to a and to kind of create populations. And it's marriage has been a tool of, tool of nation building. People like Nancy Cott talk about that, or Peggy Pasco in terms of anti-miscegenation laws, deciding who can get married and who can't who can't get married. And so trans people kind of walk right into the the very different um, function that marriage plays. So there was one. Um, one uh, jurist in the European Court of Human Rights—he was looking at a trans marriage case. He's like, "Oh my God! If we recognize the gender of this trans person, it's going to throw centuries of property and inheritance law into confusion. We can't do that." So, so when I looked at the marriage cases, I saw that like they're always fighting over something. So it was maybe child custody. It was, or often property. Uh, maybe the one of the worst cases involved a woman named Christy Lee Littleton in Texas. And uh, her husband died in a hospital, and she was suing the hospital for medical malpractice. And the hospital's insurance uh, company and its lawyers were like, aha, we can figure this out. We're not going to deal with this malpractice claim. We are going to say that because Christy Lee Littleton was assigned male at birth, of course, they didn't put it that way, "Um, she's actually a man. And therefore, her marriage to this fellow is a same-sex marriage. And therefore, it is you know not valid under Texas law. This is like nineteen ninety nine, and the uh, an appellate court in Texas agreed. They said you know a surgeon cannot change with a scalpel what God created at birth, um, and so the hospital didn't have to pay out. Or other other cases involved like. Uh, People fighting over property and inheritance rights. So when there's something at issue, there's a tangible thing to fight over. Trans people will more likely lose. But when it comes to being tracked in terms of identity documents, the policies have always been more, much more easy to change.
0: Yeah, and and that makes sense in terms of you know I think as you said in the book, it it is. In the best interest of, for example, the DMV, if you have someone who appears to be male, that's how they identify for their document to reflect that. And it throws kind of everything into chaos if there's that discrepancy. But as the book lays out with the examples of these um, marriage cases, there are people, yeah, who are fighting over money or the custody of their children and marriage as an institution is so much of how in the United States, especially rights are apportioned and your access to, you know, housing, wealth development, and, you know, families and all sorts of things are through marriage. And so being able to access that has a whole different kind of outlook in terms of what you're able to do as a citizen And kind of fighting over that has, in some ways, much higher stakes than whether or not someone has the right gender marker on their driver's license, for example.
1: Yeah, so so that's why you were saying earlier. Like, I'm trying to decentral transphobia. Like, it's good that driver's licenses and DMVs have have, are making their policies towards trans and non-binary people better, but sometimes it's not because they're it's not reflective of an absence of transphobia, it's because it's helpful to the state institution we're talking about that they do that policy. So that's, so that's why I kind of want to kind of look deeper into the origins of things.
0: Yeah, I think that understanding that the idea of transgender identity is something that as an organizing principle is relatively new. And obviously, there are people who have defied gender binaries and been kind of outside of what people generally think of as male or female um, for a long time but you know especially pre maybe mid 20th century most people were not thinking about that in terms of transgender um, because that didn't yet exist as an organizing principle I think is kind of useful in terms of just the integrity of the argument and ha- kind of making it hold up a little bit better um, because it's not as if all of these things kind of suddenly sprung into place but have been adapted. And as you say in the book, the function of the state serves different roles in different contexts. So I thought that that was really um, insightful for the argument.
1: It's funny, I was trained as a political scientist, but I spent all my time in women and gender studies and didn't really like political science and ended up writing a very political science-y book about the state. But um, but what was interesting to me is like we think of this thing called the state like as, as, as if it's singular. But in fact, there's all these different agencies and institutions that actually do different things and sometimes they're they're working at, at cross cross purposes so we could have someone could be an m at the you know the New York State DMV and, you know, an F on their like, you know, Tennessee birth certificate um, because they're different They're different state agencies doing different things and I say uh, in the book like, sex has been naturalized as we think sex is something you're born with and a lot of people in transgender rights and gender and sexuality studies understand that sex is actually something that is like an effect of power relations and all that sort of stuff, which is great but I think when it comes to the state we don't have a sophisticated view, we just think the state is some nice, bumbling, night Watchmen. And we have to just explain things right, and then the the state will just fix it. But the state is this kind of the states are a series of institutions that like have just you know a collections of norms and rules of way doing th- and ways of doing things. That's not necessarily hierarchical and as rational as we think.
0: I thought that that was a great clarifying point to make, and just really helps reframe a lot of things. And kind of zooming out with the book as well. Um, I wanted to spend some time talking about your critiques and reflections on kind of the state of the trans rights movement. You've obviously been involved in trans advocacy for a long time. And I think there are maybe some counterintuitive perspectives on the focus and the tactics that the mainstream movement is taking. Can you tell me a bit more more about that and if your thinking has evolved since you started writing the book?
1: I have criticisms of identity politics and the transgender rights identity politics model of course, I have, of course, when someone from outside the trans and community critiques it, I'm like, no, <laughs> be quiet, you know. So I'm mean, kind of like in that internal, external thing. So, but I do talk about like this idea that like the key distinction we, we always focus on is between transgender and cisgender people. So for example, I have a chapter about incarceration. When I talk about how like, you know, trans rights advocates make the kind of, it's an appealing argument to say trans prisoners have it really bad. Um, and that's definitely true. But what it does is it implicitly suggests, or sometimes explicitly suggests, that cisgender prisoners are doing fine. You know, and so trans prisoners for the most part are not getting the gender affirming medical care they need. But just prisoners with cancer are getting ibuprofen, so it's like it's just like the wrong kind of comparison to make. So in that case, I say let's look at let's compare trans prisoners with people on the outside who are not prisoners and look at the policy differences, and then we can think a little bit more about incarceration and how it operates and what it does. So I understand the um, appeal of talking about transgender people and the transgender rights movement, but I think if we don't kind of break it down sometimes and look specifically at what particular institutions are doing. We're just n- not being political enough.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that the book does a good job of kind of looking at this argument of like identity politics versus economic justice. And I think that focusing on incarceration was a really good choice to to make this clear. Can you tell me a bit more on why you wanted to focus on incarceration specifically and what makes that as an institution, such a revealing topic for this conversation. Yeah, and so I'm not
1: an expert on incarceration, so and the, the chapter uses incarceration as a way to talk about the economy, sort of in a more kind of Ruth Wilson Gilmore sort of way. So, what I look at start off looking at is like the the arguments that trans rights advocates say about non discrimination laws, like we have to pass a non discrimination law, or else. Trans people will end up doing like survival things that are criminalized, that end them, that put them in prison. And there might be some empirical truth to that, but it doesn't critique prison. It suggests that prison is what happens when you do bad things. So what I want to do is kind of like look at why we have this, you know, carceral economy, which in prison, you know, I know the rates of imprisonment have gone down slightly, but we're still like way higher than any other by by many times other countries. So I want to look at like how identity politics kind of that transversion glosses over economic uh, injustices that and, uh, and not just focus on like the non-discrimination law. Because, you know, it's fine to have a non-discrimination law and have people to be able to get a job, but not if it's at, at the minimum wage, right? We have a minimum wage economy where you can't live on the minimum wage. So I just try to make us uh, you know, broaden our perspectives a little.
0: So often, I feel like the conversation is about, you know, pronouns and bathroom bills and whether or not, you know, trans girls can play sports with other girls. And these things are all important. But again, kind of that piecemeal approach misses a a lot in terms of thinking about, as you say in the book, you know, what would be the most kind of beneficial to trans people are not necessarily those individual acts, but, you know, having universal health care would be great. You know, having the state not kind of regulate some of the things that it regulates right now in terms of the way that it makes these decisions about who gets what is so important to kind of zoom out and think, think a little bit bigger, dream a little bit bigger about what could be possible for trans people and what actually would help the most.
1: Because the non-discrimination laws, they're fine. And I'm not, they should definitely pass. But like, as I think yeah, you referred to the three things that would help the most trans people the most are like, uh, you know, making income inequality much less worse, prison abolition, and like a national health care plan. So that would make the most difference to transgender people, because we could talk about all the bad stuff happening in red states, and it's pretty terrible. But we have to remember that blue state life for trans people is also not good in terms of like the access to health care and income inequality and incarceration. So we have to kind of keep the big picture in mind.
0: And I think that that goes back also to what we were talking about earlier in terms of this uh, kind of pitting feminism and trans activism against each other, is that, again, so many of the things that help women in general are also things that help trans people. And to zoom out even further, basically anyone who is marginalized by the state, people of color, people who are yeah low income, people with disabilities, there's so many linkages here that trans people are not kind of the only ones dealing with these issues or the only ones who benefit from certain things becoming the reality. And I think that that is very valuable to kind of broaden the movement and, and see things in a bit more universal way.
1: Yeah. We need to kind of not just focus on these like identity based things. And of course, I'm not, sometimes, there's not, there's fewer and fewer people like this on the left, but there used to be this kind of critique of like, oh, the identity politics of transgender people, it's just about recognition, about getting their a stamp on their ID document, and I'm like, yeah, you try having the wrong sex classification on your ID document when you buy a plane ticket, or go to your Williamsburg bar, dude, like, you know, like, so we can't, so that kind of critique of of trans identity politics drives me crazy, because they're coming from cis people with usually pretty unexamined privilege, to the way they move through the world. So we definitely need to have those those that kind of recognition in place, even just so people can do politics slightly safely.
0: This has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm so glad to have talked about it with you.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio, and Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer of Audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewavesslate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. So for our Slate Plus segment, we are going to discuss kind of the state of where things stand now in terms of especially the politicization of children, trans children, and how um, legislatures across the country are treating trans uh, youth in particular as this big problem that needs to be solved right now.
1: So one thing that happened this year that I think is really indicative of the moment we're in is in Utah. In March, um, the Utah legislature passed a bill, it's one of many now, unfortunately, in the states, like one of 18, I think, that banned trans girls from playing, you know, sports in high school and elementary school, or playing sports on girls' teams in high school and elementary teams, Um, and Governor Cox, who is of Utah, who is A Republican, he vetoed that bill. He and his veto statement is was really amazing. He pointed out that there are seventy five thousand high school kids participating in high school sports in Utah. There were four trans kids playing on those teams. There was not one issue raised. There was one trans girl. So that's of seventy five thousand. The legislation was directed. Effectively at one trans girl, who no complaints have been raised, and he says in his speech, "Rarely has so much fear and anger been directed at so few." So I think that's like really telling in terms of how the right wing and the Republican Party is uh, taking um, this fear of gender transition and fear of trans trans people and trans kids and. I'll have to say this, weaponizing it uh, to kind of get folks upset. Like in Texas, it was, I think, the second state to pass an anti-transports bill. It was the year that 246 people died because the electrical grid failed. Governor Abbott comes back to the legislative session. His legislative priority is to pass an anti-trans sports bill. So I think we can see like, so transgender issues are like a distraction and then transgender issues in another sense, especially around transgender children, are seen as kind of like the, um, the scapegoat of this kind of larger cultural convulsions around, around gender. And obviously we see that with the Dobbs, the Dobbs ruling as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's so grim and so frightening to think about, especially because, yeah, as you said, there are so many more pressing issues than taking on, you know, one child or this very, very small number of people. And, you know, what what good does that do? What social good does that actually do? It really just feels like flexing the muscle to show that you can and to whip people up. And the way that trans people have become kind of abstract in all of this, as though it really is just to show a sense of you know what your traditional values are supposedly. Um, but really the human element is completely lost in all of it.
1: Yeah, it's lost. And it's lost because of you know the, the way social media works. Because I a good friend of mine does a lot of litigation and works with families and trans youth. And what's really amazing is like the right wing would make it seem like all trans youth live in Brooklyn or something. But what's, what's really amazing is that these parents have these kids and they're not into trans issues and they're whatever. And then they realize that this kid is, is suffering. And those parents who are more often than not, to my, you know, very conservative, often you know, Christian folks, they become the biggest um, champions of their kids. So it's really like it's not even about actual people and what actual people who are dealing with you know you know gender issues are facing. It's just it's just as you said, abstracted, uh, and so it can kind of t- touch on people's fears that they haven't thought too deeply about
0: to relate it back to the book a little bit more, I think that one of the themes that comes up with the kind of fear of trans kids in particular is that it's this social contagion that somehow all of a sudden there's this explosion of trans identity in kids. And I think that there's some hope with the sex classification tools that the government has, that that can kind of stem the flow that, oh, well, if you just don't let children transition, if you don't let them, you know, kind of legally or socially become who they want to become, that that will kind of stop things in its tracks And we know that that's not the case. You know, the government can't be the arbiter of people's identity, but it can be the arbiter of legitimizing people's identity or making it easier or more difficult to move through the world. But the idea that this is a contagion that needs to be stopped seems like really a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of government and people's identities as well.
1: It's also like there's this kind of there's these two different currents of phenomena that are happening. There's trans kids, trans teenagers who, you know, need gender affirming medical care. And then there's this, a larger kind of phenomena of of kids who are saying a little bit no to gender, a little bit like, you know, my pronoun is they, don't girl me, you know, like, and there's, and that's a, that's a much bigger phenomena. And then we get this kind of, um, I think it's a, like a cross between an urban folklore and, and um a moral panic where like, oh, doctors are handing out kids like can or, or meds like candy to these kids. It's just like this urban urban myth in terms of people, you know, getting you know, you know, young people transitioning, or even the, these bills that say, Oh, we won't we're gonna outlaw surgery for trans kids. It's like Almost hardly any trans youth have surgery, and the ones that the few that do have been trans for a long time and have been, you know, evaluated for a long time by providers. But so it's just this kind of urban folklore circulating.
0: It's very frustrating because there are a lot of hoops to jump through. Um but yeah I think that it all speaks to this fear that yeah sex and gender are much more malleable than people have believed and you know kind of going back to the whole premise of the book is this idea that you know sex isn't just this external factor that the state is classifying and categorizing based on a pre-existing reality but there are all these changes and you talk about in the book you know, people who have undergone different changes and and then the state evaluating, okay, well, what changes are valid and what, you know, if someone has surgery but doesn't necessarily have their identity documents changed or what can actually get them to be able to change their identity documents. It's, you know, just a reflection of life and reality being much more complicated than these structures that we've set up. And that can be scary when you're very invested in having just this very easily delineated like male and female boxes that can never be changed and are just set in stone. Um, but life life is not that uh, easy.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's very well put.